We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. There is no bigger topic when it comes to consumer sentiment than the rising demand and focus on environmental, social, and corporate governance-related issues. Today, we're looking at these challenges from the perspective of a leading VC who has invested in some of the most iconic, consumer-focused, mission-driven businesses. Ira Aaron Price has been investing in companies that are committed to making a positive impact on the world for more than 20 years. A double bottom line investor, even before impact investing was cool, Ira has helped build the category and discipline in venture capital. He currently serves as president of the Western Association of Venture Capitalists and co-chair of the VC Network. He's a founder at DBL Partners, which is perhaps the largest and most well-known impact investing and sustainability-focused firm in the venture asset class. An early investor in companies like Tesla, The Real Real, SpaceX, and Bellwether Coffee, Ira is a real visionary. He's also a longtime friend and always inspiring. I recently interviewed Ira for the inaugural D2C Summit, a new conference I co-created with global media association FIP, and I want to share that conversation with you here on the podcast. In this conversation, Ira talks about bold innovation across sectors and D2C business models, and he shares several examples of how companies are using a focus on impact as a strategic advantage. Welcome, Ira. Thanks, Robbie. It's great to be here and especially great to be here with you. You know, you talked about doing impact investing before it was cool. Robbie knows this because uh, we have, <laughs> this is a 25 year reunion since Robbie and I were in business school together. So she knows me from the very uncool days. Ira was never uncool. <laughs> so the first question, increasingly consumers are demanding greater values alignment with the companies they buy from. They want more than just a good product. They're looking for organizations that are committed to societal impact. As someone who's invested in some of these newer consumer-focused sustainability companies like Tesla, like The Real Real, like Bellwether Coffee, how do you think about balancing expectations, that double bottom line challenge? First of all, I'd say, yes, that is what consumers are doing. They're demanding that companies now meet a new standard of environmental and social goals. We're seeing this in spades. You know, you referenced it, but DBL, which stands for double bottom line, is all about this idea that there's no trade-off. That's the ethos of our firm, is to find companies where this idea of doing well, doing good, that historically people thought meant zero sum or meant compromise or meant concessionary, is now reached a point uh, where we think through innovation and innovative business models and through the kinds of entrepreneurs that we're seeing today, the idea of first and second bottom line not only aren't mutually exclusive, but they have become mutually reinforcing. And it is through the vehicle, uh, at least from our lenses as a venture capital firm, through technology and innovations that have made this possible. It's changing how companies operate. We're seeing 
this resonating with the values-driven consumers that, that you talked about, that you referenced in your question, Robbie, that you know, consumers are demanding this. And we're seeing this playing out in real time where the best consumer products are going through this metamorphosis that they don't have to give up anything and they're creating their products either through evolution or revolution that are delivering value along the lines of, of sustainability. And there's a ton of examples of this across a range of industries. Let's focus on one of those industries. I know people are interested in your experiences as an early investor in, in organizations like Tesla and SpaceX. What were the enablers behind that kind of high-risk, bold innovation? The backdrop of investing in these companies and the sectors that you describe was really motivated by this idea that investing is actually about finding the areas and the industries that have traditionally been underserved, underserved by traditional incumbents and underserved by the venture asset class historically. And that idea led our firm to this journey to find innovation that was going to disrupt incumbents in areas that we just had been what we think of as the desert of innovation historically. And part of being an investor in early stage companies is this idea of the, the David Goliath analogy. You know, we're trying to find ways where entrepreneurial teams that have much smaller balance sheets that are working with longstanding incumbents. And, and the whole idea is how do you tackle the incumbency? And it was through that lens that we ended up finding uh, industries that were ripe for transformational change. We are looking for sectors. We, we have this a trifecta framework that governs a lot of what we look at. We're looking for, as I mentioned, industries that just haven't been the beneficiaries of innovation and technology historically, that are just scratching the surface of a what we think of as a multi-decade innovation cycle. Industries that were often tied to CO2 historically, which is how the 20th century economy was built. We're looking to figure out how the 21st century economies will be built. And, and again, often industries- What does that mean, Ira? I'm sorry, industries yeah. that were tied to CO2, what does that mean? The, if you think about how the 21st, uh, the 20th century was built, it was built on the backs of a carbon economy where industries were built insensitive to what the sustainability impacts were. And now as we build the 21st century economy, we're looking for things for industries, ideas, companies, and entrepreneurs that recognize that there is a cost. And consumers are, are now thinking about the cost of not being sustainable. And so it's that sustainability lens that we're seeing consumers pay attention to in ways that we just didn't have in previous years. And then these industries often are, are characterized by oligopolies. And so you talked about you know, Tesla and SpaceX. The auto industry hadn't changed in 100 years, right? We've seen the internal combustion engine essentially be the framework. And so it was, and we, we hadn't seen a new auto OEM IPO in over 50 years when we had backed Tesla. And so that fits well with the kinds of things we look at. SpaceX too, right? We had the oligopoly of the space industry and people thought you couldn't upend that type of an industry either with a startup. And it was, again, with that mindset that we, we back those and really most of the rest of, the, of our portfolio has similar attributes around that trifecta idea. What does the radical disruption and startup mentality mean in the consumer context? And how do you think it can inform the ongoing relationships that entrepreneurs and the innovative intrapreneurs working inside large companies, as, as many of the, the people, the delegates participating today are doing, how can they form 
these ongoing relationships with the consumers they serve? Part of what we've tried to do is really question the past and question where we can actually think about where are consumers, where's there a pain point? And where can we find new ways of, of actually developing relationships with the consumers? So let's take the Tesla example. You know, we think of the innovation there as being around the car or the, the software embedded within it or the factory innovation or some of the energy and solar innovation. But actually, when you think about the relationship with the consumer, one of the key innovations was actually how Tesla sold its cars, how we sell the cars and, and how we've upended the assumption that there's a bifurcation between the OEMs that produce the car and the dealerships that sell the car. So, Robbie, when you and I were growing up, think about our trips to, uh, to that area of our community, which had all the car dealerships in a row. And that's how we buy our cars. But none of those entities were actually the manufacturer. They were different companies. And when you think about so many industries where the the relationship with the customer is everything, how you monetize that, how you build long-term value, how you, as you decrease a, a CAC, a customer acquisition cost, but increase a, a long-term value, it's all based on the embedded relationship that you build with that consumer. And so one of the key innovations at Tesla was to, to think about this in a different way. It was the idea that when you and I were growing up, we may have gone to that dealership row that's where we got our cars. But when we went to the mall, we tended not to see many car, car dealerships there. And that's what Tesla pioneered. It was the idea. It was, not too, it was, it was very similar to uh, what Apple did in many ways, right? When you and I were growing up, where did we buy our computers? It wasn't in the mall. And that's a, a, a profound change in, in how we think about customer engagement, customer relationship, using innovation to change the way we, we engage with our customers. The Real Real, which is another one of our portfolio companies, a great example of how we think about developing this relationship around sort of thinking about changing the script, right? Thinking about... Can you explain what The Real Real does? Sure. It's, the, it's, it's the, become the largest online luxury good consignment store. And it's an example of many things, including the circular economy and maybe we, uh, and, and some other dimensions to its business. But the other aspect to it is it becomes a virtuous flywheel for the customer in that a huge percentage of the customers are both buyers and sellers. So use the mall example. When we were growing up and went to the mall, uh, I, I do remember buying goods. I sure don't remember selling my goods in that same mall. Whereas in, in the real real, what the idea is, is you can take some of your assets sitting in your closet that actually have increasingly lower utility and both sell and use the proceeds to then buy something new and different. And that's a very different type of, again, it's a, it's a circular economy, both in the sense of the underlying goods and second life, but it's also a flywheel relationship with the customer, him or herself. You've called that the, the re-commerce sector, what the real real is doing. And it is really interesting. I think a lot of people listening, a lot of the delegates are trying to figure out how do we build ongoing engaged relationships. And you're talking about giving the customer multiple opportunities, multiple ways to engage 
with the organization and within the within the community under that organization's brand, which I think is fascinating. It's exactly right. I mean, back to the auto example, the OEMs that have spent historically spent so much effort building that car ultimately seed the relationship to the dealership down the street. And what I'm describing, you said it well, is you really want to have that glue that enables you not to be transactional, but to ultimately build a relationship over time. You know, I'm glad you circled back to the car example and to what Tesla's done. You brought up a couple of, I think, really important points, things that they did across different spaces. So first, they built a different kind of car, right? The product itself is a different, it's a different kind of car that is post-CO2 era, different way of thinking about it. But they also rethought the relationship with the customer. And they they had recognized that, I think, historically, the manufacturers were, were disintermediated, right? They had to go through a dealer. They didn't have a direct relationship with the customer. You know, you drive the car off the showroom floor and then it's your problem, right? Or it's the dealer's problem, you know, it's the dealer's problem, but it's certainly not the manufacturer's problem uh, unless it's some kind of a, a real defective part issue. And they said, we want to have the relationship direct with that consumer. And I think the delegates are all dealing with this challenge. Many of them have historically gone through resellers or other kinds of third parties and are now trying to figure out how do we build a direct relationship with the people we serve, which is not easy. That's exactly right. The only maybe edit I'd say to your incredibly well-articulated summary is we actually at Tesla went out not to build a different car, but to build a better car. And that was really the profound missionary statement, which in many ways is defines what we think of as double bottom line. What we think of is actually the mission we're on is this idea of not doing different for different sake, not finding a, a, a small segment that, that may not be filled by incumbency, but by trying to find a way to be better through innovation. And what Tesla ended up doing was building, you know, we, we deliberately went out, not just to build the greenest car, the most environmentally friendly car, which is what the dialogue was at the time. The dialogue when we invested was cars that, that were good for the planet often look like a golf cart and went 30 miles. And it was the idea right. of sacrifice and, and having to be concessionary. And, and really that was turned on its head with this idea, well, what if we could be a car that actually accelerated faster than Ferrari? What if we could actually be the iPhone on wheels? What if we could do all these things that you weren't getting from a traditional car? And one of the, I think, real lessons coming out of it is by building something from scratch or at least questioning the status quo, you're able to just uproot all these dimensions like what we were talking about in terms of sales channel that enable and unlock a set of other opportunities that we didn't have historically. I'm glad you, you made that distinction. It's not just about being different, it's about being better and it's about being better in terms of what the customer wants. It's about really understanding why are they coming to you in the first place and what is it that they're really hoping to achieve and I think in, in that case, what you, where, you, where you corrected me, which I think was right on, it wasn't about just something that's different. It was about combining a lot of different values that the consumer had that they felt like they had to settle and not get everything that they wanted. And I think that's a really good insight as you're building for the customers that you serve to think about what is it that they really want and how can you layer in the benefits that they need in new and better ways than the organizations that have come before you, or in the case of 
large and traditional organizations that have an entrepreneurial bent, how can you beat yourself? How can you be better than than you were by following the customer's lead and to a great extent? So can you talk about some of the other consumer-oriented sectors that you find interesting right now and kind of why you're investing there today? So what are the the best or most interesting direct-to-consumer spaces that you're seeing right now? Well, you know, we're seeing it across so many sectors. I'll, I'll give us, I'll just give some examples. The food and ag industry is one that we, yeah. is, is very similar to the dynamics we saw in the energy and the auto industry. It's an industry that's among the largest markets in the world. You know, it's a multi-trillion dollar market, but it also has an enormous climate impact. So going back to how consumers are incorporating a sustainability lens in ways we haven't seen before, and going back to this idea of oligopolies, we have an industry where it's century-old oligopolies like Cargill and John Deere and Dole and Monsanto. And we see that the consumers now have a need, a desire for products that we haven't seen historically served by the oligopolies. And as you look at some of the newfound emerging companies in the space, we see companies like a Beyond Meat really coming into that trend. We have backed a number of companies that really are trying to meet some of the consumer demand around these issues. We have a company called Farmers Business Network, a great example of really trying to democratize access to tools and technologies and the ability for small farmers to deliver to the consumer what we thought of as what the ag community did historically. When we think about where we buy, it's why farmers markets have become much more popular than when we were kids. It's this idea of developing this relationship between our food and consumption, production and consumption. And and that's a great example of that. We have a company called Appeal that is tackling food waste. How many of us go to the market, buy our fruits and vegetables, and at some point we see, gosh, a a subset of those have spoiled. And what this company is doing is finding a fully natural way to do shelf life extension of anywhere between two to 500%. It's that avocado now, instead of lasting 10 days, lasting anywhere between 20 and 50 days, but doing so through a fully natural process It's a natural peel that keeps the oxygen out and the moisture in inside a piece of fruit or vegetable. And that's really important. When consumers go to the store right now, if you went into a set of of supermarkets or retailers across the country and now globe, you have choice. You can actually get a traditional orange or avocado or lemon, or you can get an appeal-based one that has this uh, dynamic of shelf life extension. The good news about... This is from a consumer standpoint, it retains all the healthy and is even healthier than a typical piece of fruit and that the spoilage doesn't occur. But going all the way back to the supplier, there's a value prop across the entire supply chain. A great example of a win-win across the, the entire uh, spectrum, as opposed to the consumer winning, but it be at the expense of the supplier. This is actually a, a company like many that are delivering value across the board. You know what's what's so interesting, Ira, that I'm thinking about, you know, this is a conference about direct-to-consumer, but one of the things that I tell, you know, when I'm working with organizations that are building relationships with their consumers is to use your microscope, look at what your customers are asking for today, what your members want, but also use your telescope to see 
what's changing on the horizon. And I think your example, particularly of Appeal, but also I think with companies like SpaceX, they're creating technologies that are going to enable all kinds of new direct-to-consumer relationships. And I think the companies that are in the D2C space need to be looking out on the horizon at what are the technologies that are emerging that can help me better deliver on my promise to my members to more fully solve the problem. hundred years ago, the best way to deliver news was through print on paper. Today, that may not be the best way. It's certainly not the only way to deliver that value. And organizations that are using apps and browser-based experiences are finding new ways to get closer to their customers. And I think what you're pointing out is that the same thing is possible in terms of the earth space nexus, how media companies are able to connect with their customers around the world, or with the example of appeal, being able to offer a different kind of food decision-making process and food experience. You are spot on. And I love the example you gave because it actually is the precise example that, that actually characterizes SpaceX. You know, a lot of people think about SpaceX as the first and only reusable rocket and ultimately radically reducing cost per pound to get to space, right? That was the foundational principle of the investment. But the example you bring about, about how we read our news is actually related to what SpaceX is doing, perhaps even more so for this audience. When you think about what SpaceX is doing today, it's using that foundational technology to build what's called Starlink, which is a, an internet system that is meeting consumer needs across the globe. I think it's going to be one of the most important dimensions to how we ultimately judge SpaceX's success. When you talk about reading news differently today, that's true for you and me. It's true for this audience. And it's true for half the world's population, but it's not true for the other half. Half the world, as we sit and have this conversation today, has been left out. Half the world is reading the news today the way they read news 100 years ago. Half the world's population does not have access to global broadband. And as much as when we wake up and spend our day until we go to sleep, we're reliant on the evolution that you reference, half the world doesn't do that. And what SpaceX is doing is building a constellation that for the first time ever is going to enable every longitude and latitude to have that opportunity. And when the folks in the audience think about their businesses, that technology unlocks, it's a really important one to understand, it unlocks now a doubling of potential market that has existed for the companies that are in the media space, who are thinking about their own businesses, and it's that, it's a, the example I, I give, Robbie, it's almost like the early technologies that enabled the internet had profound implications on media companies. So too, does this generation of unlocking have a similar potential impact? And it's ma making sure that big companies, small companies understand these trends to see what, what it means for them. Do you have advice for the delegates that are interested, that say, you know, I'm interested in what these emerging trends are. And I, I think I'm putting, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but how they should be thinking about staying current and using their, you know, I call it using your telescope to look out on the horizon and see what might be relevant to kind of stay connected with some of these emerging innovations. You know, that is the, the golden question we get asked all the time. There's such a range of possibility in how to do that. There's no one answer. And I'd be presumptuous to 
to somehow think that I have the answer for everybody. But, you know, we know that there's a lot of companies that do that through building venture capital arms, the, what's called the CVCs, the corporate venture capital analogs to what a traditional venture capital firm does. And it enables those companies that build those CVCs to get that window of insight into the innovation side of the house. Some who don't actually build it in-house partner and build relationships with the venture and entrepreneurial community to do just that. We spend a, a pretty a decent percentage of our of our time where large companies come in and want to have discussions around innovation roadmaps, and it enables us to both expose trends, drivers, things we're looking at, and underlying portfolio companies, as well as to hear about needs. There's a lot of that that goes on. There's really no one way, but I do think it all comes down to mindset. It's very easy to march down a path of enabling status quo. It's very hard to have a mindset to disrupt what you're doing. And it's one of the traps. It's one of the reasons David Goliath, where David's have actually become bigger winners over my 25 years of being a venture capitalist. There've been more David's that have become winners because of the challenge that larger companies often have in really exploring the question you asked. It's funny, but when I first started working with larger companies, because you know, like you, I'm, ba- I'm based in Silicon Valley and especially early in my career, mostly worked with companies here, startups, and they move so quickly and they're able to innovate so creatively and aggressively. I think in part because they don't have the heavy baggage of a large successful company that they need to support. And one of the metaphors that kind of came to my mind when I started working with big companies was, yes, the the startups are like little speedboats zipping around you, but you're not able to move fast because you're a big cargo ship carrying a lot of valuable cargo, which makes it harder for you to turn quickly and to be nimble. So I think you bring up a really important point about how can you continue to move that ship forward, but also make some big bets, be innovative, and not always be held back by the responsibility and weight that you carry with your historical legacy. Absolutely. Can I just add one other thing, uh, Robbie? Because I, I, there's, there's a sector that I, I was going to mention that I, I think is actually highlights just how radical innovation can be. I love talking about it because it's a, it's a bit of a newer investment and it's definitely a newer idea. And it's actually around uh, what we think of as a mashup. This is the other dimension around sectors I was going to encourage people to think about is whatever industry you think you're in, Think about uh, another industry that's experienced similar kinds of industry uh, evolution, where maybe the mashup, as we call it, actually creates an opportunity. And so today, we, we've, we, you know, we, we know that automobile and energy go together in ways that we wouldn't have had, and batteries, in ways we wouldn't have had 10 and 20 years ago. But there's another one that I think highlights this that we have found super interesting, and that's the trend around conservation which is becoming such an important dimension to sustainability on the one hand, and the other industry that often doesn't get talked about, and that's death care. And every time I say that- You said death, right? Just in case people didn't hear that, you said, let's talk about death. I did. And because so few people talk about it, and more importantly, back to the point of, there's been such little innovation in that sector, we backed a company that's trying to do something different. So if I said, close your eyes and think about a cemetery, it wouldn't have just been the same as 100 years ago. It would have been the same as 
hundreds of years ago. There hasn't been innovation. We all think of a cemetery the way we've always thought about it. This company asked the question of themselves, why, why not trees instead of stones? And why not think about a final resting place that is in a beautiful forest? And what they've done is they've created the opportunity to improve an end of life for families and figure out ways to preserve vulnerable forest land in perpetuity. And so they've created land trust the same way nonprofits have created land trust in conservation in a for-profit regime that overhauls how people can actually find a final resting spot. And so instead of going to a cemetery, you actually have a tree with a beautiful marker. And the last time I checked, my family didn't decide on a Sunday to go hiking in a cemetery, but we do go to some beautiful places with sequoias and, and forests that, that we spend time as a family. These are those kinds of places, incredibly beautiful places your family wants to go and ultimately can remember your loved ones in a very different way than we ever have before. I bring it up because when you think about consumer choice, it is unlocking a choice that consumers have never had before. We've never had even questioned this idea of, can we actually have a, a, a final resting spot in places where we consider to be the most beautiful on planet Earth? We've always thought about our final resting spot to be in a very traditional cemetery. It's just another example that we like talking about as the question everything, and particularly in industries that haven't changed in a very long time. You could almost make it like a card game that says, here's some massive trends that are happening, and here are the industries. How would you rethink this industry in light of conservation? Or how would you rethink this industry in the light of healthier lifestyle or whatever the, the trends are? And I think the opportunity that you're pointing out is a great example, is how you can take a very staid and non-changing business that you might think there are no other alternatives and take a step back and say, okay, let's take, let's rethink A, what the goals are of this. So I think, you know, your point, what are the goals of your, your resting place? Well, one of them is so that my family will have a place to remember me. There's a physical place for reflecting, remembering, connecting. How would we do that in a beautiful way? That's, that's one way of asking it. And another one is how do we do it in light of this need to be more conservation oriented. And the one other additional overlay I give is, and how do we find industries that have traditionally not had a digital relationship with a customer? And when you think about how people have traditionally bought plots, it's not by going online the same way you would have bought, you would have found your hotel room, as an example. You typically have a physical requirement to go to a cemetery. In this particular case, this company, Better Place Forest, is building a digital relationship that isn't just better from a financial standpoint, but actually is a better consumer experience. It, it unlocks a way of providing a suite of products and services to the customer that you just didn't have before. And I, I know I think there was a, an earlier speaker at this conference. Yeah, that, good trust. Good, yeah, exactly. Yes. And when you think about the ability to have a, a company in the end of life sphere that has a digital relationship, it enables partnerships, it enables a suite of products, it enables us to tap into the void that has existed in this industry 
by by building that digital relationship. Super important and something that you know we take for granted in so many other industries, but oddly take for granted that it doesn't exist in this industry. There is a question here that I see, which someone asked, which I have to ask right yeah. now from Miguel Peralvo. What kinds of potential mashups do you think media should be thinking about? Oh goodness, you know, <laughs> the, the one thing I'd say is we have. I think we've seen a, a set of industries where media companies have been playing an increasingly larger role as opposed to, we, we think of media historically in a, in a narrower way than we think about new media today. And it's, it's actually through some of the examples I'm describing that I do think touch a bunch of industries. And one of the nice things about being a VC is, uh, is we're seeing these industries evolve to a point where what we thought of the definition of those industries in our rearview mirror turn out to be very different than what they're turning into. We have a company that's doing immersive audio and it changes the way we think about having relationships with physical environments. And a number of media companies are super excited about what that can unlock for the, the way in which they're tapping into a physical relationship with their customer base. Can you give an example of what that means? Yeah. What would an immersive experience be that a media company would offer using this audio immersive technology? Sure, so when you think about entertainment venues historically, historically we've thought about some of the largest and best audio experiences being ones that require super expensive audio equipment. So for anyone who's been to a Cirque du Soleil show, for anyone who's been to a, a physical property around Disneyland, Disney World, or think of some of the larger companies that have a physical footprint to extend their digital footprint. Any media company that has a physical environment that has an audio experience has had to spend millions of dollars to create an audio experience for their customer. And so when, it, when a Cirque du Soleil show, if you've ever been to one, what you'd see behind in, in, the, uh, in some of the parking lots are trucks and trucks of a multi-million dollars worth of equipment to create that amazing audio experience that we all had. What if we could have that same experience in museums we go to? What if we could have the same experience in smaller footprints we go to? What if instead of it just being at Disneyland, what about the Disney stores having that same experience? Historically, the cost to enable the extension of the physical footprint from an audio experience standpoint has been limited to a very small percentage of where those media assets can go offline. And what this is trying to do is democratize access to a range of physical footprints that, that heretofore haven't been accessible. I could talk to you for another five hours. I have so many more questions but I'm going to close out by asking you a question about Tesla, because I know people are really interested in, in that model as a really innovative direct-to-consumer business that has scaled and really changed the landscape in several industries. So let me just ask you, lessons from Tesla and the path ahead. You've been involved there since the very early days as an investor and as a board member. Company is gigantic now. I think it's a what 580-some-odd billion-dollar market cap. Can you talk a little bit about the journey from 50 to 50,000 employees and maybe some tips for how to think about the scaling process as organizations grow and thrive? 
We've touched on this idea of question everything and don't just take for granted status quo. Don't just take for granted the way other companies have done it. And that was in the DNA of Tesla from the onset. The idea of changing so many dimensions to the business. We talked about the channel relationship from a sales standpoint. We talked about the way in which technology is embedded in the car. The idea that your car now is more like your iPhone. Your iPhone doesn't have a terribly high utility when you take it out of the box, but when you start downloading apps, uh, it gets better over time. The more apps that you download, the the higher the utility of that phone. That's really the change mindset of the vehicle today. It's the idea that instead of depreciating 10 to 15% when you drive it off the lot, and another 10 or 15% every year thereafter, the idea is it gets better over time because of the over-the-air updates and software. That's just a different way of looking at the world. And, and, and there's so many examples I could give around the idea of just really questioning it, but doing so from the, the, the standpoint of what is better for the consumer and thinking about where, what delivers a better customer experience. That's something that I would start with. The second thing is, how do you maintain it as you grow? You mentioned scale. It's often people think about being able to question and do that as a young company, but how do you do that when you get to be a large company? Google is notorious for finding uh, structural ways to create time in one's day to think about new and creative ideas. That's one way to do it. But, But the overall concept is to maintain a culture that, continues that entrepreneurial spirit that led to success in the first place and not be afraid to do things that are different. I always love, there was a a quote, if you can believe it, by the U.S. Patent Office. It was actually in the late 1800s. And the quote was, everything that can be invented has been invented. And it's such an (laughs) ironic quote that it would come from the Patent Office. But, you know, you think about the Fords or the Edisons or the Wright brothers or the Jobs or the Wozniaks or the Pages or Brins or or the Musk, for example, who just didn't listen to that, of course, ridiculous comment and weren't deterred. And I think that's a a really important part of building a company that has a continuous innovation culture. And then perhaps the most important, just from the lens of backing young companies, but I think it really does apply to every company. And that is this idea of, of resilience and fortitude. It is such an important part of building a long term enduring company in that Every great company will have those bumps in the road. We all have experienced where we find our challenges. I have not seen a more resilient team than that Tesla team. And, you know, it stared death in the face so many times along the way. And it does go back to how we think about impact investing. When you have a team that is there because they actually, at their core, are purpose-driven. They are mission-oriented. They are actually trying to create something different for their legacy. And they're there because they're passionate about what they're doing as opposed to clocking in and clocking out. I always used to be so, I marveled when I would often be at the Tesla factory and it'd be 11 o'clock at night and there would be a parking lot full of cars. And it wasn't because like a traditional industry, there was a second shift. And the vibrancy and excitement and recruiting capability, you know, being able to recruit above where you're actually at and retain when things get tough is all a function of, of what we think of as, as an impact company, which is the other dimension I would just maybe end with here when describing Tesla as really one of the important ways 
to not only overcome adversity, uncertainty, and uncharted territory, but also, you know, recruit the very best who want to do something purposeful and uh, and legacy creating. This leads well into the final question that I see that several people have asked in different different ways, which is, what's next? What business ideas are exciting to you? What industries are there to be disrupted? How are you spending your time looking forward? I feel incredibly privileged to wake up every day and actually get the answers to those questions that I couldn't have answered in the morning because there's incredibly creative, passionate entrepreneurs that walk into our office pitching new ideas every day. Many of the things that I've described in this session are things that if asked before I met that entrepreneur, I would not have thought of myself. I mean, I I give all all the credit, any credit we get is actually credit to the entrepreneur. We are only as good as the entrepreneurs that we back. And it really is a mindset issue of being open-minded to answer the question you asked, not by way of a rote answer or structure or analytical framework or industries that one thinks they've somehow glommed onto, but rather being open-minded to the idea you didn't think about. And we hadn't thought about the idea of reusable rockets before Elon did that. We didn't think about the idea of changing. We we thought a lot about conservation. We didn't think about it through the lens of uprooting the death care industry before Better Place for us. The good news is the sustainability lens that we started the discussion with is at its infancy of evolution. And the number of companies that are going to be innovating through that lens is just at the start. The industries that we've talked about aren't industries that have had a decade-long set of innovation around it. So we do think the energy, automobile, food ag, Earth Space Nexus, and a bunch of others are really in the first inning of decades-long innovation ahead. But I do think the more important answer I could give is it's all the things we're not talking about today. And so for the folks in the audience who are thinking about how they incorporate innovation into what they're doing, it's really to try to take that lens and, and the aperture and widen it as broadly as possible. And what we try and do is try to suspend disbelief and not say no before we really actually question. And that's what we spend our days doing. Now, we, we, we obviously say no a lot during the days because we get pitched a lot of companies and ideas. But you got to stay open-minded for that idea you didn't think about. Perfect. What a great conversation. Thank you so much, Ira, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Robbie, it is, again, and where I started, it's so great to do this with you. Everyone knew back in the day that if we were going to get a conversation going, doing it with you, Robbie, no one better. So thanks a ton. That was Ira Price, founder of DBL Partners. This episode was recorded live at the FIP Direct-to-Consumer Summit, and I'm delighted to be able to share it with you here on the podcast. For more about Ira and about DBL Partners, go to dbl.vc. For more about the summit and to access the other interviews with stories from The Economist, Strava, and Nike, among others, go to dtc.global. And for more about my work with subscription and membership models, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com. You've been listening to the Subscription Stories podcast. This is Robbie Kelman Baxter. If you love the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Mention this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews and we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Subscription Stories.